Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, historians generally agree that no one knows exactly where Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's east coast when he named our state in 1513, but Douglas Peck says he knows where Ponce came ashore. I have proven, not, not suggested, not maybe, navigationally, proven that landed, I put it, within eight nautical miles. Leona Law Carlsward came to Vero Beach more than 90 years ago in a mule-drawn wagon. Daddy's brother told him fishing was real good, that he could make a lot of money. He packed us all up on that wagon and brought us to Vero Beach, Florida. We'll discuss one of Florida's female aviation pioneers, Jackie Cochran. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sunday, Feast of the Flowers At the helm of San Cristobal Juan Ponce de Leon Land in our sight Now we sail to our fate St. John's River Lead us to the fountain of youth As we search for gold, we search for truth. An historic marker approved by the Florida Department of State identifies Melbourne Beach as the possible vicinity of Juan Ponce de Leon's landing. The marker reads, while there is disagreement among scholars, it is believed that this site may be in an area where Ponce de Leon made landfall in 1513. With words such as possible and maybe, the statement on the marker is far from definitive. In October 1992, the Florida Historical Quarterly published an article by Douglas T. Peck titled Reconstruction and Analysis of the 1513 Discovery Voyage of Juan Ponce de Leon. In the article, Peck describes his attempt to recreate Ponce's voyage from Puerto Rico to the east coast of Florida in his own sailboat. In 1993, he expanded the article in a book called Ponce de Leon and the Discovery of Florida. With 2013 marking the 500th anniversary of Ponce's naming of Florida, the work of Douglas Peck is getting attention again. When I retired from the, the uh, military service in 1964, even before I retired, I've always been uh, uh, interested in history. And when I was stationed in Europe, I've been stationed overseas for over 12 years in every country you could name practically. I always visited their museums and their their uh, 
uh, historical sites because I've been interested in history. So then when I retired, I first started racing. I bought a sailboat and and I was racing. I got tired of that, and then I decided that uh, my interest in sailing, uh, I would start retracing in my sailboat, retracing the the Spanish explorers. And I started with Columbus. I've sailed across the Atlantic four times, uh, retracing Columbus's voyage. After following in Columbus's wake, Douglas Peck combined his enthusiasm for history and his passion for sailing to retrace the 1513 voyage of Juan Ponce de Leon. Many professional historians who are experts in 16th century Spanish have studied the documents from Ponce's voyage and determined that the papers do not clearly identify where exactly he landed on Florida's east coast. Douglas Peck believes that he alone has correctly interpreted the available documents. It's simple. Uh, I had a copy of his log. He had a very... Uh, Ponce de Leon was no, was no navigator. He was a warrior. His uh, navigator was Anton de Alaminos, and uh, he was a very competent... Uh, he was taught his navigation by Columbus. He was on all four of Columbus's voyage, and he learned his navigation from Columbus. He was a damn good navigator, and he left a log that was a very good log. I was able to uh, follow it exactly. It's an accurate log, but these college professors that read that log, they're uninformed on navigation, but they think they they look at the the, the data in, in uh, Ponce de Leon's log, and they say, this doesn't make sense. And so they say, you can't determine where, exactly where he landed because the data's no good. The data is absolutely accurate. Same way with Columbus's uh, voyage. Columbus was a damn good navigator, too, and his log is accurate. Douglas Peck's own writing makes it quite clear that he made many assumptions about crucial elements of Ponce's voyage, such as speed of travel and how Ponce dealt with weather conditions. Also, Peck used a contemporary sailboat for his voyage, not a recreation of Ponce's ship. Any of these factors could dramatically impact where Peck would land on Florida's east coast, but he insists that his navigational skills allowed him to exactly recreate Ponce's 1513 voyage straight to Melbourne Beach. I hold the highest rating you can get in navigation, in, in, uh, in global navigation. Uh, my, my rating in the, in the Air Force was for global nav navigation. I, uh, your airline pilots are rated for just a few uh, trips here and there, and that's all they're rated for. I was rated globally. I could go anywhere, and I did. Uh, uh, flew the airplanes uh, uh, all over the world. And so then when I, and navigation of sailboats is identical to uh, aircraft, identical. Same, same magnetic, uh, magnetic compass, very same one. Uh, it's uh, identical except it's a lot slower and I've got time to have a rum and coke while I'm <laughs> Before dismissing Douglas Peck's claims, you should read his conclusions for yourself. His October 1992 article in the Florida Historical Quarterly can be accessed online. 
Other areas of Florida that have claimed Ponce de Leon landed there in 1513 include St. Augustine, Ponce Inlet, and Jupiter Inlet. Douglas Peck is still emphatic that Ponce's landing site was Melbourne Beach. I have proven, not, not suggested, not maybe, navigationally proven that landed, I put it within eight nautical miles. I couldn't, you can't pin it down to a hundred feet or a thousand feet, but I, I pinned it down, I can pin it down to eight nautical miles of, of uh, where the present, uh, 28 degrees, it's, it's within eight nautical miles of that uh, park, which has the, the uh, monument with my name on it. The monument that Peck is referring to is the same historic marker that claims Melbourne Beach may be a possible landing site of Ponce de Leon in 1513. With the 500th anniversary of Ponce's voyage in 2013, differing views of the Spanish explorer are being espoused. Some have called Ponce a calculated murderer and rapist who tortured and enslaved the people he encountered. Others almost deify him, calling him a noble man of God trying to bring enlightenment to primitive people. The truth, of course, lies somewhere between these opposing views. Douglas Peck has a very positive view of Ponce. The uh, biggest misconception is the fact that he was not looking for a fountain of youth or gold or slaves. He was looking for a wealthy new land of Bimini to exp expand the Christian empire. He was a, a devout Christian. And... Uh, he that, that's he wasn't looking for gold or slaves or a fountain of youth. That's ridiculous. And I have proven it. Douglas Peck's most recent work for publication looks at how the Spanish in Florida have been characterized, cast in what he sees as an unfair negative light. Peck says the black legend about Spanish colonization efforts in Florida has been perpetuated by English colonists. He hopes that the 2013 anniversary of Ponce's voyage to Florida will provide an opportunity to set the record straight. You know, these Indians, they, they appeared in, in the, in the I, I attended a, a number of uh, uh, celebration events of Columbus's landing, um, and there were Indian protesters there, protesting Columbus as a no-good bastard that mistreated the Indians, and that's not true. Columbus was a very devout man. He, in his will, he left, he had a church built and paid the uh, clergy entirely for the Indians. He said, this church is for conversion of the Indians, and for, uh, he, but he's, he's depicted as mistreating the Indians, uh, just like Samuel Lopez is chairman of the Royal Order of Juan Ponce de Leon Historical Celebration Committee and is very supportive of Douglas Peck's ideas. The, the plans are basically is to, is to have a celebration of inclusion, and that is so important. Inclusion to, so that everyone could, could learn about Douglas Peck's findings. His findings are very, very important because it has turned the tide um, and, and, has, and has opened the door for further research. And what we can find now with, 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 with the younger generation 
going in and starting to um, understand and start digging into history, um, so many other things are going to be uncovered um, that's going to shed a light on the early beginnings of this nation. Lopez has been planning to create a multicultural research center at Melbourne Beach, where Peck says Ponce landed in 1513. The multicultural center is so important to us because we want to shed light. We don't want to we don't want to pick on any nationality. We want to we want to we want to go down the path about history. It's so important um, for everyone so that we can set the record straight, people to understand. Um, and when people have a better understanding of their surroundings and the contributions that other people have made, um, then we can start looking and the research then uh, things that have been put on the shelves or things that people really didn't want other people to know um, start coming out. Um, it could open, open and shed lights of other ventures and other things that were happening. I'll give you a for instance, a real big for instance. Um, we just did some research and it turns up that Puerto Ricans who are American citizens, okay, fought on both sides of the Civil War. They fought with the Union and they fought with the Confederacy. And we actually have their names. We have the people's, the, the, the family's uh, uh, background. Um, and there was numerous of them and other Hispanics that did the same of Mexicans, um, Americans, um, also um, Spanish of Spanish heritage. So this field is, you know, this is just starting. It's, it's like we're starting over again. And um, and so it's great because we can now start getting young people to start to focus on history again. At the Melbourne Beach site, Samuel Lopez plans to erect a larger-than-life statue of Ponce de Leon next to the Multicultural Research Center, which will be named in honor of Douglas Peck. Sam Lopez. Because it took a, a person of character, a, a person who spoke it like it is, um, and that's very important. And, and I think he himself knows for past experience what it is to have history blocked. His books blocked, blocked from getting in. People not wanting him, his research to come out. And so now, all of this now is opening doors. Samuel Lopez is chairman of the Royal Order of Juan Ponce de Leon Historical Celebration Committee. Douglas Peck is a history enthusiast and sailor who attempted to recreate the 1513 voyage of Juan Ponce de Leon landing in Melbourne Beach. Glory to Spain, our flag in the sand. We claim this soil for King Ferdinand. Strange eyes upon us Like daggers across the bay But God is with us On this Easter Sunday St. John's River Lead us to the fountain of youth As we search for gold We search for truth
Discovered new land Easter Sunday This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, search the collection of the Library of Florida History, look at historic photographs, find out about upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, sparking an historic cultural exchange between two worlds. This event, which led to centuries of conflict and colonizing, marked the beginning of the American melting pot. Florida commemorates its 500th anniversary in 2013. University of West Florida anthropologist John Worth. In 1559, Spain mounted her most ambitious attempt yet to establish a colony in the southeastern United States, led by Don Tristan de Luna y Arellano. Financed directly by the Spanish crown, a fleet of 11 colonizing ships carrying some 500 soldiers and 1,000 colonists sailed from Veracruz to establish a beachhead on the northern Gulf of Mexico at Pensacola Bay. From this colonial port, Luna was to march overland across the Appalachian summit to establish another colony on the Atlantic coast of modern South Carolina, preventing the rival French from settling Florida first. Fully realized, the Luna colony could have ultimately linked Mexico and Florida, extending and securing Spanish dominion north from New Spain and all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and potentially changing the course of history for colonial North America. In the end, however, one hurricane changed history, devastating Luna's fleet at anchor, and with it, the bulk of the food for the 1,500 colonists. Despite abortive attempts to move the colony inland and barter provisions from Native American groups deep in the interior, Luna was deposed and the colonists withdrawn. Today, only the wreckage of Luna's ships remain as a tangible trace of the Pensacola colony that almost changed the history of North America. University of West Florida anthropologist John Worth. These moments in Florida history were created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Leona Law Carlsward was just three years old in 1921 when her family moved to Vero Beach from North Florida in a mule-drawn wagon. As Janie Gould reports, she's lived there ever since. Leona Carlsward moved to Vero Beach in a covered wagon in 1921 when she was three. She and her parents and seven brothers and sisters came down from Jasper in North Florida. Daddy's brother told him fishing was real good, that he could make a lot of money. He packed us all up on that wagon and brought us to Vero Beach, Florida. Every night we had a meal at the campfire. I didn't like liver sausage, but we loved our daddy, and he let us sit on his lap, and he would feed us. And I was eating liver sausage because my daddy was feeding me. I ate it. Her father, Nick Law, died unexpectedly in 1931, leaving her mother, Mary Law, to raise the large family. He left us with a good house and a little bit of money. They always had money. They farmed tomatoes there one time and made a fabulous amount of money. They were not educated, but they had a head full of common, good, I call it horse sense. (laughs) One thing they taught us, you don't go in debt 
to buy anything. If you can't pay for it, you can do without it. If they got a dollar, they didn't spend it without they had to. They taught us that, and I thank God that they did. I don't owe anybody this day. They taught us to not borrow anything from anybody unless we absolutely had to have it. There was a old couple lived in our neighborhood. The old man had a shovel. My mom needed the shovel real bad, and she didn't have one. So she sent me over to Grandpa Johnson's to borrow the shovel. But wouldn't you know, when she started to use it, she broke the handle. And it almost broke her heart. She went over there and told him about it, and she said, I won't bring it back until I get a new handle. Somehow or another, she got a new handle, and then we took the shovel back. We didn't have a lot of nice furniture. We had good beds to sleep in, and we always had plenty of food. A lot of fish, collard greens and cornbread, turnips and mustard. Our utility bill was just about the only bill we had. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask if you had electricity. Yes, we had electricity, but we just had lights in the ceiling. We didn't have any electrical equipment. Mary Law washed the family's clothes outside using a rub board and tub. She hadn't had a chance to wash because it was so rainy, and I needed a clean dress. She went and got a hand-me-down dress, and she cut me out the best little dress I ever had. She took a dress and cut it down to your size? And made me a cute little dress out of it. And she didn't throw away the scrap. She made a lot of quilts. She could do just like a man. She planted sweet potatoes one year. When it was time to dig them out of the ground, I thought, what's she going to do with all these? She dug a hole, and she filled it full of straw. And we'd put those potatoes in there, and not one of them rotted. Eight decades later, Leona Carlsworth still remembers the kindness of people in Vero after her father died. The Baptist Church, the big Baptist Church downtown, the ladies made us some of the prettiest dresses you ever saw. Sometimes they'd leave groceries on our front porch. Mary Law struggled to support her children by taking in washing and mending. Reluctantly, she agreed to meet with someone who represented a new program, Social Security. She got $80 a month, Social Security. She couldn't believe it. She said, is it all right for me to cash the check? (laughs) Leona Carlsworth and her late husband, Arthur, have four children. She worked the night shift for 27 years as a switchboard operator at Indian River Memorial Hospital. She still lives in the same neighborhood in the heart of Vero that her parents brought her to 90 years ago. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. African-American stunt pilot Bessie Coleman lived in Orlando and died in Jacksonville in 1926 when her plane malfunctioned. Coleman was a contemporary of aviatrix Amelia Earhart, along with another Florida aviation pioneer, Jackie Cochran. Bill Dudley has more. She crashed and the plane was broken in half But she still emerged, as always, putting her lipstick on and combing her hair before the press arrived. Biographer Doris Rich talking about an incident in the colorful life of Jackie Cochran, pioneering woman aviator who during a long and exuberant career set more records than anyone in the history of flight, even as she hobnobbed with test pilots, aircraft designers, generals, captains of industry, and two U.S. presidents. She wanted to be rich and famous. (laughs) 
and she fell upon aviation as a, a means of doing it. She was born Bessie Pittman in 1906 in Muskogee, a small town on the western end of the Florida Panhandle, where her father was an employee of the Southern States Lumber Company. Moving from camp to camp as the forests were harvested, the Pittmans lived in towns with names like Pine Barren, Millview, and Baghdad. At eight, she was working in a textile factory, pushing bobbins up and down the aisle for the machine. By age 15, with a second-grade education, Bessie had survived a short-lived marriage to a man named Robert Cochran and was making a living as a beautician in Montgomery, Alabama. She bought her own car and taught herself to repair it. She saved her money and bought part of a small business. And in the spring of 1929, she boarded a train for New York City. When she got on the train, she was Bessie Pittman, but when she got off, she was Jacqueline Cochran. The Jacqueline she got from a telephone book. She thought it sounded nice. In New York, Cochran talked herself into a job with one of the top salons in the city. A year later, in Miami Beach, on business, she met Floyd Odlum, a Wall Street financier, busy amassing a multi-million dollar fortune, even at the height of the Depression. Odlum's money would help Cochran fulfill her two life's ambitions, owning an upscale cosmetics business and flying the latest and fastest airplanes. She and Amelia Earhart had advantages in being married to very powerful and wealthy men. And they had access to people and machines that other people, even male pilots at that time, did not always have access to. Claudia Oakes was the first woman professional hired at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and later CEO of Long Island's Cradle of Aviation Museum. Now, that's not to say Cochran didn't earn everything she got. I mean, she still got to go out there and fly it. She still got to make that speed record, make that altitude record, make that distance record. Today, it's difficult for us to appreciate just how unreliable and dangerous the planes of the time really were. The engine on one of Jackie's first planes failed repeatedly in midair. She survived literally scores of forced landings and even crashes resulting from mechanical failure. But by the mid-30s, she was setting records for speed, altitude, and distance. There were very much drawing board airplanes, and a lot of these people, like Cochran, made their names by test flying these airplanes to see exactly how they could be made better. During World War II, Cochran commanded the civilian WASPs, or Women Air Force Service Pilots. Fiercely loyal to her women, she nevertheless lost the fight to have them incorporated into the military and made enemies with her aggressive personal style. In the 1950s, despite her friendship with President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Cochran lost her race for a California congressional seat and decided to return to aviation. In May 1953, a week after her 47th birthday, flying a Canadian F-86 Sabre jet, she became the first woman to break the sound barrier. Just a decade later, she beat the record of a French woman by flying well over Mach 2 in a Lockheed F-104. She was 58 years old. Then, in 1971, years of hard living and relentless ambition to be the best caught up with Cochrane when a massive heart attack ended her flying career. It broke her heart when, when she was finally told that she could not fly. A former Far East correspondent, Doris Rich, has authored four biographies of women aviators, including Amelia Earhart. She believes that despite her fame and a lifetime of awards and accomplishments, Jackie Cochran never forgot the poverty of her Florida childhood. This childhood formed the woman. She was a survivor. She was tough, persistent, and highly intelligent. Everything she did in her life was calculated to, how can I get ahead? How can I get to the next step? What do I need to do to get me 
to another level of success. It wasn't always driven by money. It was what I can do to better myself. The book, Jackie Cochran, Pilot in the Fastest Lane, is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week. Until then, find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.